Welcome back to another episode of Single Payer Radio. Single Payer Radio is a project of Kentuckians for Single Payer Healthcare. We are an affiliate of the Kentucky Chapter of Physicians for a National Health Program. And we're proud to be a community partner with Forward Radio WFMP 106.5. The views and opinions expressed here on Single Payer Radio are those of the speakers and not the station. We're recording today's show, June 4th, 2021. And just a couple notes before we get into the program. Uh, as we were ending um, National Mental Health Awareness Month in May, Baptist East announced that they were closing the inpatient psychiatric unit. They were making that decision to close permanently. Oh boy. Um, and then June 1st, um, I read in stat that they reported that the editor of their um, a Journal of American Medical Association is leaving, JAMA. And he's leaving because of pushback from a podcast and a, a Twitter feed that he questioned race, racism in medicine. And JAMA has been criticized for not publishing or prioritizing research on health inequities and racism. And then the story also referenced an article um, they did that last October, a black cardiologist, Dr. Raymond Givens, looked at the editorial boards of the New England Journal of Medicine and discovered that of its 51 editors, one was black, one was Hispanic. And at the Journal of American Medical Association's editorial board, 49 editors, two were black and two were Hispanic. So not to be a buzzkill, Dr. Flynn. Well, let me begin with the usual disclaimer that any uh, views or comments that I might make uh, are my own personal views and do not uh, represent the uh, views of the uh, Department of Surgery or the University of Louisville. This is Eugene Shavley. Uh, my views of those who are my own. They do not represent the views of Taylor Regional Hospital in Campbellsville, Kentucky, nor the views of the University of Louisville Department of Surgery. So we, our topic for today will be homeless health issues. And we're really fortunate that we have two guest speakers who have had lots of experience dealing with these issues. Uh, Bob Voida is a physician who works at the um, Family Health Center of Phoenix, which is next to the St. John Center on Muhammad Ali at the edge of the UofL medical campus. Uh, he was an emergency room physician for many years at Baptist Hospital East and a primary care physician before that. Also, we have Teresa Casey, a nurse practitioner who also works at the Family Health Center. Uh, in Phoenix. Uh, she, uh, as, as a retired uh, lieutenant colonel with Kentucky Army National Guard, and over the years has worked uh, 
at both uh, U of L and U of K in an assortment of positions, uh, mostly in emergency rooms and in aeromedical services. So Bob, Teresa, I thank you both for your willingness to come on and discuss these issues. As we have done with our guests in the past, we're going to give you both an opportunity to uh, make whatever comments you like. Um, uh, I, I'd hope you'd give us a little information about the family health centers, how they work, their, their governance and, and, and those kind of issues, as well as um, what you both do. And then the conversation will begin. Now, my mother always told me, ladies, go first. So, Teresa, we're going to let you have the first shot, and then we'll put Bob on. So the floor is yours. Oh, goodness. I'm, I'm honored and terrified. <laughs> um, I, I would like to also say on my behalf and Bob's, even though we are employed by Family Health Center, we both get very passionate about the issues surrounding homeless health care. And sometimes the things we may say or think are not those of our employer as well. But to give you a little background, Family Health Center has been as a federally qualified health care center since about 1976. It had been a clinic of the Global Metro Health Department and then expanded through grant to FQHC. We have eight clinics in the city. Um, we are a certified uh, patient-centered medical home, so we offer all range of services uh, to our clients. And we have two very unique clinics. One is an Amer the Americana Clinic, which mainly serves refugees, immigrants, and houses the um, survivors of trauma clinic um, for mental health benefits for um, those who have, have been through traumatic situations um, coming from other countries or in this country. And then Phoenix Healthcare for the Homeless, which is the only clinic that exclusively serves homeless um, population. And we are, as you said, located by the St. John's Center, which is a day center serving homeless men um, in various capacities. Okay, Bob, uh, your turn. Well, I wanna add to that saying that, you know, of being a federally qualified health center, really um, physicians in Louisville kind of helped drive um, the push to uh, develop uh, the mothership of this place, and that was Portland. And it was sort of born of the uh, civil rights movement of the 1960s. Uh, physicians in Louisville were really very much aware of inequities in care for um, uh, people of color and uh, poor people. And so they, uh, you, you won't find any of these family health centers anywhere in the East End. They are basically all located west of I-64. And um, I'm very fortunate that I have an opportunity to work here. Uh, everyone that works here wants to be here. You don't have any jaded folks that um, are burnt out on medicine. And uh, from the top up, top down, um, everyone here feels like they have a mission. And that's, that's a really pleasant experience and a really good place to work. Now, can you tell us a little bit about the governance? Uh, uh, do you have a board of directors? Uh, just who's in charge of, of, of what? Just to give us a sense of, uh, uh, you know, of that aspect of, of these, these family health centers. 
Well, um, we do have a board of directors, and what's interesting is because it's a um, FQHC, you actually have to have um, patients as part of that board of directors. So I actually have the um, honor of taking care of people who sit on the board, and they uh, <laughs> were, <laughs> were homeless uh, at a time or are homeless still. And that's, that's um, kind of an interesting perspective because they can really educate me. Wow. And I can add to that, I guess. Gene, they, go, ahead. Go, go ahead. It's, we have a little bit of a complicated situation, I think. It, it's hard to, kind of difficult to understand because we are a quasi-governmental agency. So we do have some funding from the local um, city um, public health funding, and then also uh, from the federal perspective. And because of that, we're somewhat tied into the governance of, of the um, city council to some degree. Um, I don't fully understand it. As I said, it's somewhat of a complicated situation because it is a, a federally qualified healthcare center. We uh, fall under the community health centers um, with block grants and uh, the programs that are initiated federally, but, and as well as locally. Okay. Gene, do you want to start the ball rolling? Yeah. Do you have to have an administrator to take care of all this bureaucracy and, and correlate it? We do have an administrator. Um, and I mean, we, we have a typical hierarchy that you would find in any large uh, clinic system with, um, an administrator, vice president, your human resources. Um, it's very similar to maybe even a hospital type perspective. And but I will say that, that out of all the places that I've ever been employed, the administration here is intimately involved in day-to-day -day operations. Bill Wagner, our retiring CEO, um, has been here 40 years. He came up through the system. The interim CEO, um, Bart Irwin, was actually the homeless healthcare supervisor here at Phoenix before uh, his promotion within the system. The people who are, are in our administration have done our work, so they understand the challenges that we face on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah, the nice thing is that when I was hired here, um, they basically told me I could practice the way I want to practice. I, I don't feel any pressure to uh, come up with a bunch of numbers for the organization. They realize that our clients, our, our patients are um, difficult, not just to handle their medical problems, but also the psychosocial problems that they have. And they require more time and more care. And uh, so we never hear like, well, you should see more people or you should do this or you should do that. Uh, we try to make time for everybody because they, they require time. And it takes a lot of time to uh, develop uh, trust with this patient population. They're very used to um, being uh, neglected. They're used to being ostracized. They're used to being kicked out of emergency rooms. And so, when we show them a little bit of kindness and, and give them the time of day, 
and actually sit down and talk with them, they start to open up and then we then we can start to solve some problems, hopefully. How many providers do you have? <laughs> well, there's me. <laughs> there's uh, Terry Casey here. Terry does a lot of outreach. Um, I'm more based in the clinic and rarely uh, except to visit patients in the hospital and sometimes over at Wayside Christian Mission. Um, and then we have a nurse practitioner who's full-time also based in the clinic. Uh, we have a psychiatric nurse practitioner basically on loan from seven counties, but she works out of our clinic here. And we have another part-time nurse practitioner. We have social workers. Uh, we have a nurse that does triage and we have a nurse that um, basically supervises the medical assistants. And there's four, five medical assistants. One does nonstop TB testing for all the homeless shelters here. And the others uh, assist us in taking care of the patients, doing their vitals, and just basically the routine stuff uh, that you do, getting a little bit of history and teeing them up for us to see. Okay, let's, uh, let's get back to basics here. And I'm gonna ask you both to, to answer this this question maybe bob I, we can start with you and then teresa you can you can add to it or uh, most of our listeners aren't they don't know homeless so the question is <clears throat> who are they they males females they all young children black white gay uh latinx can you kind of give us a breakdown of who Who's the homeless population in Louisville? I, I, you may, I guess, because you're next to the St. John Center, have focused on 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 the male homeless. But just for the sake of giving our listeners a sense of an idea who you how you're dealing with these, sure, absolutely. Who they are. And then maybe Teresa, after when we get to you, I, I, you do a lot of visiting of those camps, and maybe you could give us a sense of. The, the kinds of things you encounter when you're when you're uh, uh, guess out out on the road. So um, you know most people know what a Gaussian curve is. Um, it basically starts out kind of flat, and then you get a big bump in the middle, and then uh, it kind of gets small at the other end. Um, very few of our uh, people are young. Um, I think uh, the majority of the patients, greater than 25% are between the ages of 35 and 44. And 75%, um, I would say, are men, or 70% are men, 30% are, 35% uh, are women, and there's a, a few that um, identify as other. And um, a small percentage, very small percentage are children. There's uh, probably eight or 10% that are under 25. And then the, the rest kind of fill in the rest of the curve there. Uh, uh, what's been kind of um, disturbing, I've noticed this trend in the last year or two is I, I see more and more elderly people. Um, I see people in their mid sixties, late sixties, early seventies who end up showing up at the Salvation Army or at Wayside Christian Mission and the Low Barrier Shelter um, because they've lost the ability to um, afford living anywhere. 
and cannot manage their affairs. And um, yeah, uh, so it's, it's kind of a Gaussian curve, but the middle bump is basically your 35 to 44 year olds. Um, and I think statistically out of the, the population, uh, if you want to break it down along racial lines, about 70%, 60, 65% are, are Caucasian. Um, and um, yeah, around 30 to 35% are uh, people of color. And then there's a, a maybe a very few Asian Americans in there and very few Latins. Okay, so, Teresa, then when you go on the road, uh, what do you see in the camps? Is it the same breakdown or is this a different group that you you encounter that are under the bridges and in, in the in the tents in various places around Louisville? I think that the breakdown in the camps was probably a li little more in that um, 28, 30 year old to 45 year old age group. There are not quite as many elderly, although there are some. Um, in fact, there, there are two brothers right now that I've encountered that are 63 and 68 that have been living in a tent for a couple years. Um, and what we find with the elderly in those situations is they, they generally have multiple chronic illnesses and they are just not able to to manage their income. They don't know how to find housing. They, this is the only way they know to take care of themselves. Um, we'll also say that in the encampments, um, the population is also about the same with your Caucasian versus people of color. Um, not a lot of differences than what we see in the clinic or in the shelters. Obviously, you will see in the shelters the families being housed. We see very few families that are in camps. Um, most of those are identified um, shelter situations pretty quickly because the VOA, um, Salvation Army, have programs for families. Um, they're a little bit easier to get housed and, and managed because of the situation with children. Okay, I want to ask you again uh, another basic question to give our listeners a sense of, of kind of what you're dealing with. And Bob, I'll ask you to go first and make Teresa, yeah, you can do it again. So, the, the, you know, the, the question is, why are these people homeless? I mean, is this mental illness? Is this substance abuse? Is it drug addiction? Uh, did they lose their jobs? I, I know this is all worse with the pandemic, but if you can give us a sense of of, of the etiology of, of, of this, you know, the homeless population that, sh that you see? Um, sure. Uh, probably the number one cause of um, homelessness, and this is coming from the uh, National um, Homeless Law Center, uh, statistically, number one is lack of affordable housing. And Louisville, is probably not nearly as expensive as many other cities. Um, you know, you see this uh, huge number of people in New York, you see a huge number of people in San Francisco and LA who absolutely just cannot afford to live there. Um, unemployment is huge. 
poverty is a huge driver of uh, homelessness. Um, and uh, along with that go uh, low wages. Uh, you know, if you can't um, earn a living wage, then uh, you're not gonna have a place to live unless somebody lets you stay with them. Now, as far as mental illness is concerned, as far as drug addiction is concerned, there, there was a grant um, given by the city and it was called the Homeless Initiative Grant. And uh, they came up with some statistics as well. Um, in the, la like the last three months of fiscal year 2020, um, they served about 1,500 people. Uh, out of those 1,500, 727 had no income. Now, could they just not find a job? Um, was it because they were unemployable for some reason or other? I, I, I don't know, and um, that's not obvious in the report. 479 of those people were chronically homeless, and um, the definition of chronically homeless means you've either been without a, a roof over your head, a stable place to live for uh, one contiguous year, or four times out of the past three years you've been homeless. I don't know why that definition is like that, but I didn't make it up. 317 of the 1,500 were victims of domestic violence. 88 were um, youth under 25. 85 were veterans. Um, there were 78 children under the age of 18, and out of, out of the 1,574 people were currently fleeing um, domestic violence. And that's usually women. I, I have not encountered a man fleeing domestic violence, except for maybe one whose father beat the crap out of him and he just had to get out. 27% um, had mental illness, 20% had a physical disability, and sometimes the physical disability is minor, like a bad knee. Sometimes it's major. Um, I had a guy who moved down here from Chicago who had had half his brain blown away. He can't move his left side hardly, um, somehow manages to get around and he can express himself and he has a pretty intact memory, but he, um, here he is in Louisville. Um, another one was dropped off at Wayside Christian Mission uh, when um, he was discharged from a nursing home in Southern Indiana after a stroke. He can't speak. He's um, hemiplegic and um, basically we're taking, he's in a low barrier shelter at uh, um, Wayside Christian Mission. And I mean, that that's, kind of the spectrum that we're dealing with there with physical disabilities. Okay, Teresa, can you give us a sense of, of how these issues are uh, break down when you go to the encampments? Uh, are they the same percentages or, the, or is it a, is a little bit different since you're letting us, that's a, my understanding from your other comments was that the, apparently in the encampments they're, they're younger. Uh, and I, I guess a little bit healthier physically. Maybe more alcohol and drug abuse. Yes, uh, definitely more alcohol and drug abuse. I mean, there—that that is a 
a huge reason that people are in encampments because they are living lifestyles that, that they can't support if they're staying in a shelter or other area. Um, but I do see a lot of people with mental health problems. We have uh, outreach social workers um, that come on our outreach teams from seven county services, from Family Health Center, from YMCA Safe Department um, to try to engage these folks with mental health and substance use disorders. Um, there are also disabled people um, who are in wheelchairs in these camps and they just find it easier sometimes to live in that environment than to be with, within a shelter environment. Um, people in camps form communities and they either fight with each other like crazy or they take care of each other very well. They, you know, so people that are disabled in some way um, seem to have a community of people around them that make sure they get food, that make sure that, that they aren't getting wet in their tent and try to help them out. So I think they, they feel safer in that environment because they're not um, in a shelter where people are stealing their, their medicines, their belongings, that um, there, there's a lot of there's assaults and things that happen in the shelters. And I think to some degree they feel safer in the uh, tent community environment. Wow, that's, that's interesting, Jane. Uh, what degree of psychiatric illnesses are we talking about? Are we talking about schizophrenia, bipolar, or are we talking about uh, social problems that lead to mental illness? Can you give us some idea of what the people of the homeless, what type of illness they have? Um, they have the full range. Schizophrenia, they have the bipolar disorders. I, I would say almost every single person has some form of post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, either they have lived through events that have shaped, shaped their mental health in a way um, that they have these illnesses or by being homeless and the lifestyles they're living have developed PTSD. They all have insomnia, sleep issues. When you are in this environment, you have hypervigilant sleep, whether you're in a shelter or in an open environment, because you never can fully sleep. You have to constantly be aware of what's going on around you. Very similar to what you would see in a military um, <clears throat> environment. So, they develop a lot of illness, uh, mental illnesses based on just the lifestyle that they're living if they have not already come into it with that. We also see a lot of social anxiety disorders. I was, go ahead. I, I would add to that that the probably the most devastating uh, mental health problems are, are the schizophrenics who um, do not uh, take their medication, um, and even if they're on medication, the medication sometimes isn't working, and they seem to be completely disconnected um, from reality. They tend to be preyed upon whenever they do get some material goods together. They are attacked, they are beaten up, and um, yeah, that's, that, that's pretty devastating. The, there are plenty of people who are very, very depressed as well. Um, many have been abused as children, um, and uh, they carry that trauma and anger with them uh, throughout their life. If you see a schizophrenic that's completely uh, 
decompressed, uh, uh, can't take care of himself, uh, needs to be hospitalized. What do you do with those patients? Uh, we, we, Good question. Sometimes we're fortunate and we can get them uh, directly admitted someplace like the Brook. Um, uh, often they have to go for a psychiatric evaluation over to university hospital um, and uh, then their psychiatric resident will make a decision determination if they are uh, danger to themselves or others. Um, Norton has been good about admitting some of my patients who have been deeply depressed and suicidal. Um, so yeah, we do depend on the ER sometimes. Uh, there is a crisis intervention uh, team. Um, I guess the ACT team also. Yeah, the ACT team sometimes. is more of a, um, they don't do actual crisis work though. Mm -hmm. The ACT teams out of Wellspring and um, Centerstone or Seven Counties serve to um, try to help people with chronic homelessness and mental illness stay on track in terms of their medications and their housing. They provide ca intensive case management to identified individuals. All right, let, let's uh, again, go back to another kind of basic and, and uh, let me get you both to give me your views about the uh, sort of non-drug uh, related or, or, or uh, mental health, health issues like diabetes, hypertension, uh, heart disease, obesity, how, how does, how does this, how do the homeless compare with the general population, uh, Bob? Where that where you see them in in the clinic and 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 then, Teresa, where you see them in the encampments? You want me to go first? I, right. I think our our population is similar in in the chronicity of their illnesses. Yeah, um, I'll I'll tell you. I'll probably the top eight or nine. Uh, things that um, the homeless experience are injuries, assault, getting hit by cars, um, exposure. Uh, I've been practicing medicine for over 30 years um, and I'd never seen a trench foot before. First summer I was working here, I saw trench foot after trench foot and we would put them in a respite unit just so their feet could dry out and start to heal, um, heat stroke, uh, frostbite, uh, toes have fallen off in this clinic because of frostbite, you know, um, they don't get admitted to the hospital for frostbite. They uh, are discharged and say, come back when, the, when there's a demarcation line of where the injury is. And it's been really difficult to uh, keep people in the hospital sometimes. Um, a Toronto, Canada survey, 40% uh, of the homeless in Toronto had been assaulted. Um, they're nine times more likely to be murdered than the general population. I see a tremendous amount of foot disorders and I've kind of learned a lot of podiatry on the fly. I trim people's toenails, I take off their um, calluses and um, treat their plantar warts because by the time I send them or refer them to a podiatrist, they're gone, they've disappeared, don't see them again. If I can treat them here in the clinic, it's done, it's taken care of, and they can walk out without a limp. 
Um, malnutrition um, is a problem. Uh, the infectious diseases, hepatitis A, B, and C, seem to be rampant, um, not just because drug use, but uh, um, that's part of it. Um, TB is a problem, uh, HIV slash AIDS. Uh, dental problems are rampant, especially uh, things like meth mouth. Um, we do have a dentist here in our clinic and uh, dental assistants. So we take care of a lot of dental things and I've pulled a few teeth myself. Um, respiratory problems are very common, uh, especially in overcrowded shelters. Um, Luckily this year, people have been wearing masks, so we didn't see the flu. Um, I, didn't, I didn't have one case of the flu. There were times where I saw COVID after COVID after COVID in the clinic, um, but um, now I don't see hardly any of that. And part of that is because people are more outside, but um, hypertension, diabetes, um, I think compliance or, uh, with treatment is less than 60% in the general population, it's even harder with the homeless because they'll lose their medications so they don't take their blood pressure medicine. Their insulin can get frozen in the wintertime. It can get, get baked by the sun in the summertime, and so it becomes useless. Um, so we try to hand out insulin syringes one at a time here uh, for certain people that we know are going to either lose it or not have a place to store it. Salvation Army has storage units. Um, I think that's probably helpful. Um, if people can store it somewhere else, that'd be great too. Things that need to be refrigerated. Uh, heart disease is three to six times higher among the homeless population, whether that's, I don't know why, probably neglect, smoking, drugs, not taking their not not taking their heart right, medicines, not yeah. Managing their blood pressure or their diabetes. Yeah, yeah, Teresa. So, what do you what do you see uh, in, in the in camps? Is it the same uh, percentages? Again, I, I got the impression from you that you're dealing with a younger population. I sound like they're a little bit more active, and so uh, uh, again, is give us a sense of where these other non-drug-related, non-mental health issues occur in the encampments? In the encampments, I tend to see um, abscesses, skin conditions. Um, Dr. Bob talked about the um, frostbite. This winter, I, I saw so many people with frostbite that went to the ER, were sent back to their tents, had no way to keep their feet warm, so their feet got worse and worse. Uh, we do have a medical respite area, but many of these people will not leave their, their belongings or their camps to go into medical respite. Um, they, they have, some of them are barred from the shelters. Um, there's various reasons. So that continues to be a problem. I do see people with hypertension. We can measure their blood pressure, get medicine back out to them. Um, another thing that I see a lot are traumatic injuries that have been treated and then discharged from the hospital back out to the encampments. I have one person that had, was stabbed, um, had a chest tube that, that was pulled, went back to the camp and ended up with um, subphrenic abscess and some other problems. So um, we, 
I, I do see a lot of that. People with external fixator devices who have been discharged from the hospital, now they're back in their tent. Um, people with asthma, uh, one lady was using an engine from a car battery to try to power a nebulizer because her, her asthma was so bad. Wow. Uh, yeah. I mean, it, she, she was innovative, if nothing else, you know. <laughs> but, you know, this. she and her husband were in a program through Goodwill to um, be able to get a job, to get housing, and then COVID hit and everything disintegrated very quickly in those programs. So they were stuck in their tent and they had a car uh, that didn't go anywhere, but they were able to charge the battery so she could use it. You know, it, it's, it's amazing to me sometimes how people, the things they find to survive in those environments. And we have camps everywhere in this city. Since I've been doing outreach, it's not just downtown. There are places in the city that you cannot see them. They're very well hidden and you would be very surprised where they are. Yeah, Gene. Uh, you talked about a patient who had had a stroke that had been dumped from a nursing home. Are you seeing more and more patients who are being kicked out of nursing homes and being dumped, uh, uh, particularly because more and more nursing homes are for profit now? Is that having an influence on the homeless? Reasoning behind the dumps. Um, because when you try to call them and find out why exactly this patient was discharged without any kind of a plan, um, it's crickets. So you don't uh, know, nobody's going to call you back <laughs> to listen to you complain. And what I see sometimes is they have gone to the nursing home for some form of rehab. You know, they're in there for acute rehab. Now their days have run out and no one has done the work to skill them for longer term placement. So they just put them out and I had a nursing home, someone in a nursing home tell me one time when I went to visit one of my patients, we don't know what to do with people. So we just put them in our van and take them to the shelter and leave them. And I'm thinking, why are you telling me this? You know, I, you don't know me, but now I know this, that you're admitting you do this. You know? Isn't that against the law to do that? Abandon patients? Well, I would think so, but you know, so often, the patients have no one to fight for them. We have recently called the nursing home ombudsman at the state level for one person, and I don't think that got us anywhere. You know, the the people that this is happening to don't have the ability to um, fend for themselves, so to speak. Jane, there's a lot of stuff that's against the law that doesn't get uh dealt with in any way because it's not enforced because people don't get caught. Yeah, you mentioned a patient with frostbite. Um, did that patient get admitted to the hospital or were they sent back to the camp? Well, we, we both had patients with frostbite um, and uh, one of mine was admitted to Norton Hospital and they were going to take off his half of his foot and then they decided they're not going to take off half his foot and they sent him back out to the street. Um, they readmitted him a few days later. Uh, and he ended up at Wayside Christian Mission. Uh, he didn't care for it there. He was back out on the street. I got him admitted to Baptist thinking the orthopedic or vascular surgeons there might actually uh, take care of it because in addition to the frostbite, the foot looked infected. I, I was worried about osteomyelitis and he ended up um, getting uh, 
discharged to the street without any surgical intervention after several days. They were planning on putting him in a nursing home and for some reason they did not. He was just discharged and he got on a bus and went back to Tennessee where it came from. (laughs) (laughs) I did my residency in the 70s and at the old local general hospital, we never did things like that. We kept them until they got well or uh, or they died or or somebody would take care of them or the social worker did something. Well, that, yeah, that, yeah, that brings us to another issue. And, and the issue is people are, in, in my mind, being discharged too early from hospitals. And we don't have something in between a nursing home and the hospital. If somebody's too sick to be in a nursing home, too complicated to be in a nursing home, they should be in the hospital until the hospital deems that their care is uh, that, that, that somebody can care for them outside. We really need a proper respite unit. And, and um, there used to be almshouses in the United States. There used to be these uh, quasi hospitals. Um, the last one is in San Francisco. It's um, the Laguna Honda Hospital. Um, and um, they basically allowed people there to fill up. And um, there's a book written by uh, Dr. Victoria Sweet, who's a, a associate professor in internal medicine um, at the University of California, San Francisco. It's called God's Hotel. It's about her experiences over the decades. Um, we have the same problem with mental illness, not just the, the physical illnesses. Uh, people get admitted to, it's called Peace Hospital now, uh, but it used to be Our Lady of Peace, and um, they'll stay three or four days and get discharged on four or five different medications, and they end up here the same day, uh, hoping to get their medicines filled, not knowing if they really are going to work or not work, because they haven't had a chance to kind of kick in. Um, So along with all of the horrible physical conditions that we see out on the street, you've also got these... uh, chronic mental illnesses. Um, you used to be able to, to take care of them long-term. And I understand what happened in the 70s um, probably looked like abuse with some of these uh, people who are chronically mentally ill, keeping them in the hospital against their will. But um, discharging them to halfway houses and then cutting the funding for the halfway houses didn't help because now they are basically on the street. And, um, you remember seeing a movie called One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest? <laughs> well, I mean, this when I way back when I was a resident in the 60s, there were these institutions around that took care of. Now, they weren't perfect, but these folks were taken care of somewhere. Uh, in the 80s, we had a president who made the comment that government uh, isn't the solution. Government is, in, is the problem. And since then, the, 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 the social responsibility for a lot of folks in this country is just has been denied. And the reason all these things are happening is that we don't have a health care system. We have an assortment of of activities, some for-profit, some not-for-profit. There's no integration. The, the, the local government, the state government, the national government, they don't really consider themselves responsible for taking care of all, a, lot, a lot of these problems. 
when, uh, when I was a medical student, and when I was on psychiatry, I spent about six weeks at Central State. At that time, there were about two or 3,000 people yeah. at Central State. And there was nobody teaching us, so a friend of mine and I, we would make rounds, and we would examine the patient, see if we could come up with a diagnosis. Then we would go and look at the chart and see if we were right or not. There were also all types of weird neurological illnesses there. And so we learned a lot. <laughs> but, you know, what happened was that uh, Thorazine came along and these people didn't need locked wards. And so somebody came up with a bright idea that's inhumane to keep these people in these uh, large wards as they started letting them loose. What they forgot was that there's no one out there who really cared about these patients and there was no one to make sure they would take their medicine. Exactly. And that was, and that was, it was just an easy way to get out of, get out of dealing with the issue. All right. Let me ask you both a question, which uh, I don't know, maybe a stupid question, but I want to ask it anyway and get your, get your response to it. Uh, health insurance. You got Medicare, Medicaid, private insurance. So can you give us a sense of, of does anybody have any insurance? Any Is that an issue at all for homeless? Um, I, I'm assuming most of these people are on Medicaid and, uh, you know, what, what, what kind of a mix uh, are, are you seeing and how does that play into how you manage uh, some of these, these problems? I'm, Almost all of our patients now have Medicaid or they have the ability to get Medicaid. And we have that's, a that's because we did Medicare expansion, a Medicaid expansion. In the state. Yeah. You know, um, before I was here, I managed a free clinic in Danville. We had about uh, 280, 300 patients and all but five of our patients got Medicaid when expanded Medicaid. Came and these are folks that had chronic, it was a chronic disease management clinic. And the similar situation occurred here um, when expanded Medicaid happened. I also think, and I, this is just an observation, it seems like now that with the hospitals, even though they say they're not for profit, we know that's just a, a thing, that's just a, a thing they put out there for sure, that the um, like Jean said earlier, people stayed until they got well, and that doesn't happen anymore. It's all about how few days can we keep a person to maximize our profit and then turn them out. But they don't really have anywhere to turn them out to. Some of the case managers are good at trying to find places. Some are not as good. Um, one of the things that I feel like we need is a, a liaison for the hospitals with our organization or in terms of homeless health care um, so that people aren't just turned out onto the street and trying to find their way around. Um, and I see in their papers a lot of times discharge home. Well, they have no home, so you're not really discharging them home. But COVID seemed to really make this so much worse. It was so difficult to get anyone in the hospital to truly get well because they were trying to keep people out of the hospital. Um, and that seems to have just continued. And that might be my own perspective. I'm not sure, Bob, what you think about that, but it seems like there's not, we want to move people in and out so fast that they're not truly well when they leave. 
If you have a supportive environment, maybe you can manage that. But most people don't have that kind of environment. And when they're in the hospital, oh, they take their medicines. Physical therapy says they can walk 150 feet with a walker, so they're good to go. Well, yeah, they walk when somebody's helping them. They take their medicines when you put it in front of them. They get to the bathroom when the assistant helps them to the bathroom, but you put them out in our, what we call medical respite, which is not medical, has no medical providers whatsoever. I see people twice a week. The rest of the time they're on their own to make sure they get their meals, they take their medicines, they do their treatments, whatever that is. They deteriorate very quickly and have to go back to the hospital or they end up here at the clinic and Bob sees them and says, why, why are you not in the hospital? And so we try to get them readmitted. Um, and I do believe that the commercial insurance and our profit system drives a lot of that. What, what I'm hoping for, and I don't, I don't have the numbers for, for this, what I'm hoping for is that um, in the years to come that I can kind of convince the managed care organizations and the hospital administrators in the area that we need some kind of a facility that's actually staffed by trained medical personnel and that we'll get care that, that's somewhat between a nursing home and a hospital and that they will be given time to heal. They will need social services. They will need psychiatric services. They will need all of that stuff. But it, it would be turning back the clock a little bit, but that's really what we need. And if I can show them the numbers that, well, this guy's been to your emergency room four times out of the last seven days, surely that has to cost you something. Um, they've been readmitted to the hospital this many times. They've been to Our Lady of Peace this many times. All that costs a lot of money and nothing ever gets better. It gets better if, if they leave town or if they die. And that's, that's, that's not an endpoint that we're looking for. So there's work to be done. Um, but I, I would need bean counters and accountants and medical personnel to actually uh, be able to get something like that accomplished. Now, what, one more question. I'm going to I'm going to ask you the question, and then Jean, and then I'm going to ask Jean to talk a little bit about uh, an experience that a surgeon. Okay, we've got five minutes, so we're getting toward the end of the lollipop here. Uh -oh. <laughs> the, 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 this has got to do with about the, you know the healthcare. So I, I'll ask you to maybe answer the question quickly, and then ask Jean talk about the Atul Gawande, uh, Amazon, and the, the, those those issues about you know fixing healthcare. So uh, again, last five minutes, quick issue, um, just for the sake of discussion. Suppose. Um, I don't know, next few years, either there is a public option added to the Affordable Care Act, which, uh, you know, who knows with the Congress, the way it's running, or some kind of uh, single payer system was available in this country. What effect would that have on the homeless population? And, and try to do this quickly so I can get yeah. Jane to talk about this other this other aspect. It, it, it might affect us some, but but right now, most of them are covered under Medicaid. Um, back before the Affordable Care Act, only 12% mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And any kind of coverage now, it's around 80%, which is great because if they have a hernia that needs surgery, I can refer them to a surgeon. The surgeon will get paid. It's, it's that simple. Would a single-payer system in this country be better? It would certainly be simpler. Uh, you wouldn't have to deal with multiple formularies, multiple rules and regulations, uh, duplication of services, just all this kind of stuff that goes on. I have a um, friend who runs a hospital. He's a CEO and, and CFO, and he's a staunch Republican, voted for Trump, and he said to me one day, I would... I'm so sick of dealing with insurance companies. I'm ready for a single payer system. Go ahead. Uh, do, do you have uh, residents and students that rotate with you? We have, we have people that shadow us. Um, they usually uh, nurse practitioner students. Uh, sometimes I, mean, I even had a high school student, but he had so many, um, uh, college credits already that, that he graduated from college the year later and now he's uh, going to medical school <laughs> sometime yeah, soon. You don't but, have medical students who rotate or are residents? Not we yet. Not. not yet. We have discussed that. Mm -hmm. It would be uh, very welcomed, I think, um, both for collaboration purposes, education, um, and also manpower. Yeah, they could educate me. All right, Gene, are you going to tell them about, because this we're getting to the end here, because I think this is an important point to well, make. Warren Buffett, to. Uh, one of the big banks in uh, New York and Amazon, they formed this co co company two and a half years ago. And um, about just a few months ago, Warren Buffett talked about it at the stockholders meeting the first part of May, and, and they failed. And the reason they failed, they said that it's too big, that they cannot do anything without government support. Yeah, the point here is the only way that this health care is going to be improved in this country is that it's going to have to happen at a central government federal level. And uh, which is one of the reasons we're here. We're sponsored <clears throat> by an organization that's supporting that. Uh, Mark, how are we doing here? Um, okay, uh, we're getting close to the end. I want to thank both of you. This has really been a good discussion. I've, I've learned a hell of a lot. I got one more question. All right. <laughs> <laughs> University <laughs> Hospital State Supported, do they have any obligation to take care of these patients? Um, they take care of them. Um, by default, they become the homeless clinic uh, when we're closed on weekends and at nighttime. Uh, so does Jewish Hospital, so does uh, Norton Hospital. I mean, I know the ER doctors there. I, you know, we get along really well. And um, we talk often. So um, they try, but um, I think they, they come up against uh, certain barriers as well as to what they can do. They're, they're, the rules kind of tie people's hands. They can't just keep people there forever. All right, down to the last two minutes. Again, I want to thank you both. This has really been a good discussion. Uh, I've learned a lot. Uh, I think our listeners have learned a lot. I'm going to let Mark make the final comments and we'll wind it up. And we'll, once we go off the air, maybe we can chat a little bit uh, before we disengage. Okay. 
Teresa, Bob, thank you so much for your work mm -hmm. and this conversation. You know, at the end of June, that's when the eviction moratoriums end. So I right. hope that that doesn't trigger another wave of homelessness for folks. And, um, you know, to your to your point about trying to get money from the state legislature, it seems like they're more interested in giving tax breaks to, to the to, rich. Well, yeah. Instead of giving uh, social and uh, economic um, services to uh, to folks at the lower rungs. So the um, uh, for folks who want more information about Kentuckians for single payer health care, you can go to kyhealthcare.org, kyhealthcare.org. And for more information about Forward Radio and how you can participate in our community all-volunteer radio station, you can go to forwardradio.org. Uh, what is a good contact uh, point for folks who want to volunteer or assist over at uh, Phoenix Health Center? Well, we don't have any volunteer positions here, um, and I think it's because we're federally funded healthcare center, which is, um, we everyone here is an employee. Um, basically, they're all civil service jobs. Um, there are many other places where people can volunteer, and I would contact the Coalition for the Homeless for that. Um, that's a conglomeration of various organizations. So St. John's could also probably use volunteers, especially attorneys and, and, and people like that. Um, I, I do have three books that I want to mention and recommend to your listeners. One is um, by Dr. James O'Connell. He's with the Boston Healthcare for the Homeless Program, and he was my inspiration to come here. Um, his book was, I believe, Out of the Shadows, uh, uh, Reflections of a home, uh, Doctor for the Homeless or Street Doctor. The other is by Dr. Virginia Reed, God's Hotel. And the third one, uh, Virginia Reed is spelled R-E-E-D. And then there's a book by T.R. Reed, who goes from country to country and looks at their healthcare systems and how they developed and the pluses and minuses of them. And he is R-E-I-D, T.R. Reed. It's called The Healing of America, but that's my little pitch for those three books. <laughs> okay, good deal. Thank you so much. And can I?